You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This episode of the EdUp Experience is sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a digital marketing agency with a vision of creating education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. Specializing in student nurturing programs, digital advertising, marketing technology, and digital printing, MDT Marketing's seasoned team is entrusted by career education institutional leaders to develop communication strategies that are compliant, personalized to student needs, and highlight what differentiates their institutions. Learn more about MDT Marketing at mdtmarketing.com. That's mdtmarketing.com. On this episode of the EdUp Experience, we welcome Dr. Art Kaiser, Chancellor at Kaiser University, the largest independent college in the state of Florida. Dr. Kaiser is also chairman of the National Advisory Committee on Institutional Quality and Integrity. As chancellor, Dr. Kaiser oversees 21 Florida campuses, which also include three international campuses, two in China and the other in Nicaragua. We're very excited to talk to Dr. Kaiser. He's got over four decades of experience in higher education. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience. Joe Salustio here. This is Elizabeth Lila. And on the line, we are very excited today to have Dr. Art Kaiser, Chancellor with Kaiser University. Dr. Kaiser, how are you doing today? I'm good. I uh, hope everybody's well with you. Well, uh, thank you very much. And, you know, before we get into the episode here and, uh, uh, you know, ask you questions and we want to make this as comfortable for you and, and conversational. Uh, but before we get to that, how are you? How's your health? How's your circle, your family circle and, and friends and family doing? Well, not good. Everybody's good. My family is doing well. Uh, we have a, I have a little granddaughter who's uh, mm-hmm. a year and a half old and she's walking now and everything's good. All right. Well, you'll be chasing her around, I'm sure. Um, uh, <laughs> I need the right. That's right. Keeping you fresh. Well, we're really excited to have you on, uh, you know, you, uh, to say that you've been active in the space of higher education for years would be an understatement. I think um, uh, I, I've for for a while um, we we know a lot of the same people, and and you uh, have been a um, a very strong advocate for for profit education, uh, for a strong advocate for Kaiser University. But if you would, um, for our listeners, give us the Art Kaiser one one. Um, you know, talk to us about Kaiser University and and how you've gone to, I think, well over 20,000 students now uh, or more, and uh, your personal journey um, in uh, growing that university. Okay, I'll start at the end. We are now uh, Florida's Florida's largest independent university. We have 20,000 students on uh, 21 campuses both in the United States, in Nicaragua, and China. So we have a, a wide reach. We have uh, uh, we are the largest nursing program in the state of Florida. Many of our programs are ranked very highly throughout the, in, in the country, the different rankings. Uh, we started 43 years ago, my mom and I, 
we started with one student. She was late. And uh, we started with two programs. I was late. That's a true story. And she came in the first day and said, Mrs. Kaiser, I'm sorry I'm late. I hope uh, the rest of the class doesn't mind. And she had to look at her and say, you are the class. She went to school. Uh, and uh, we grown from that day on. So it's been an interesting journey uh, from being an unaccredited school to now we have close to 30 different accreditations, including our institutional recognition by Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. Yeah, and you, you um, uh, Kaiser University has grown rapidly over the years. Um, and uh, if, if you started as a for-profit, if I'm not mistaken, and eventually made the conversion to, to nonprofit, is that correct? Well, it's not necessarily a conversion. We sold to a nonprofit. Uh, uh, this this month will be ten years. So, but okay. most of our history was in the for-profit sector. All right. So, you know, look, uh, uh, full transparency here. Liz and I, um, Liz currently, and and I, in my past, worked in the for-profit sector, and um, we, you know, the experience. We're really committed to showing all sides of education. You know, there's no. But the skin in the game for us here on this podcast is really to just highlight higher education. We have no other uh, uh, motives. But, but you know, for-profit education, and this is me talking here, and I get to do this because this is about half my podcast or a third of my podcast with Elvin and Liz, is that, you know, for-profit has gotten a bad rap. Um, you know, uh, I think there are a few players that sort of gave the industry or the sector a bad name. Uh, there were a number of closures over the years uh, um, in the for-profit sector. But, you know, uh, I think there's this fallacy that people who worked in for-profit care less about students than people who work in nonprofit, And that is just complete garbage. Um, I, do, I, I believe that's the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that. There's, there's the great, there's the great, uh, there's the question I was getting to. So tell me why you think it's inverse. Well, first of all, the folks who, at least most of the schools, and I, and I say most, it's like in anything else, whether most of the public schools do a great job, most of the, the for-profit schools do a great job. Many of them are family-owned organizations that. Like in my case, we put our name on the business. And when you put your name on something, you have to stand for something. And in our case, it was a student-first mentality. What bothers me so is that the history of the United States higher education was founded upon entrepreneurial educational experiences. Uh, In 1741, Ben Franklin started a school called the Franklin Academy, which is now the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, During the Civil War, it was the for-profits that stepped up to train women because the men went off to war and the, the businesses of uh, of the Northeast needed uh, institutions to serve the women to make them uh, accountants and uh, assistants. And uh, these schools still like Brent and Stratton still exist today. Uh, when I, one of my favorite is uh, in 1940 when Hap Arnold, who was the head of the Air Force, the Army Air Force at that time, was looking to train pilots because we didn't have enough pilots and he saw the war coming. They went to six private educational pilot training schools, two of which are still in existence, Spartan 
and uh, Hallmark, and both are, are very active career colleges. Historically, career colleges are the backbone of American career education, and unfortunately, we grew, we grew fast, we grew at times, uh, and each time when there has been a recession, our schools, which have elasticity in terms of enrollment, grow very rapidly, and where public institutions are limited by tax dollars, which are shrinking during a, a downturn, and the public and the nonprofit schools tend to limit enrollment, we get a bad rap because we're growing when everybody else is not, and that makes it a very uncomfortable competition among the sectors of higher ed. So, yeah, I do believe we get a bad rap. I think there are rationale behind it, whether it be unions not liking us because we're not unionized for the most part, uh, whether it be the fact that the public education does, does not like the comparisons because our graduation rates and placement rates, which they don't even count, are higher. But, uh, yeah, you could say I'm passionate about the this higher education sector and that is the for-profit sector. Well, that's great. And uh, thanks thanks for that because I, I agree in large part with what you're saying. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough because you, you – uh, I don't know, you probably felt this way too, and Liz, uh, you as well. You pour your heart into helping students, and then some. somebody on the outside says, oh, well, you guys don't care as much, and, and you've devoted your life to helping people. It's, it's, it's hard to accept that. But yeah, I taught in the know, public sector, and all we talked about were budgets, not students. And in fact, right. the professor I worked for, had a great line. His line was, it'd be a great job if it wasn't for the students. Oh, That's one of the reasons we opened our school, because like, it just drove me nuts, because I wanted to teach and I wanted to be uh, help students grow. And I didn't find that where I was teaching. Right. Well, Liz, I think that's a good uh, segue for your, your questions, because I know you have some. Oh, you know, I have a ton of questions here. And I guess full disclosure, Dr. Kaiser, I don't think he knows this, but he's my boss because I'm an adjunct <laughs> at Kaiser University. Actually, I started my teaching career with Kaiser as um, an adjunct in the Pembroke, at the Pembroke Pines campus here in South Florida and then went on to be a full-time instructor there and um, transitioned into some other um, areas in higher ed. Uh, my full-time gig now is I do instructional design for another school, but I still do some part-time teaching for Kaiser. And one of the things that always impressed me about the Kaiser way of doing things was that student-first mentality. And when I, I, I've told this story probably a few times when I went to University of Florida as an undergrad, and I had a great experience there. And it definitely was a, a worthwhile um, journey um, when I got my bachelor's degree from there. Um, they said, look left, look right, neither of those people will be there at graduation. And that always up with me because I, I agree with Dr. Kaiser, public schools sometimes tend to have their own view of what education should be. And a lot of times at the smaller career schools and the for-profits where um, I did spend um, quite some time um, in this field, they have a, a motivation to make sure the students are successful and really focus on retention and focus on graduation because um, they're there to serve a lot of underserved, underserved and uh, disadvantaged students and, and students that might not be able to complete a degree. Um, so I, I just want to let you know uh, that I do really admire what you've done with Kaiser growing up in South Florida. It's been something that's been um, a very good um, 
example of what we need to do as educators for our students. So with all that being said, that long monologue, um, the pivot to online. Um, I was actually on campus at the Fort Lauderdale campus as an adjunct, and um, I want to tell this story because I think it's really informative to what you do there at Kaiser University, Dr. Kaiser, um, and Joe will appreciate this too as uh, someone that's working in the online space and has a, a great desire to make sure that people understand the responsiveness of online. I remember going to campus and it was like one day it was like, okay, we're, we're waiting to see what's going to happen. And then the next day I came and they told me, tell the students they're going to be online tomorrow. So there was a, a real big response and a quick response for moving students to online and making sure they were safe. Dr. Kaiser, can you tell us a little bit about how you've informed and, and what you've done in terms of making sure that you are responsive? to students and maybe giving advice to schools that may be not as used to being able to be as nimble in terms of online. How have you been able to balance that and, and ensure that you were responsive? Can you take us to the decision-making process as far as that's concerned? Sure. I, I can go back to early 90s when I was doing my doctorate. And I experimented. This is pre-internet. This is dial-up uh, modems where I did an experiment with a number of my fellow students, with students from all around the country. And we did a course, I don't remember what it was about, astronomy, whatever it was. And what I did learn was how through a interconnected uh, off-campus off work learning system, you can have an excellent learning experience. And I learned that the key to the online experience being effective is the interactivity between the faculty and the students. We started our online program back in 1998, which we were one of the early adopters. And what we have done with all of our classes on campus mostly and on, online is we use the online framework, the, the learning platform, as the basis of all of our on-campus classes. So mm -hmm. if a student wanted to communicate with the instructor, they can go to the Blackboard, which is the system we use, and communicate directly with email. They can look at their grades. They can look at their attendance. They can look at the, the postings. Uh, if, if they're required outside of the class, they can go on to the online library system. But that was done before we even had the COVID-19. So when mm -hmm. COVID-19 struck, the students and the faculty had an ac had experience with the online system. And prior to the COVID-19, we had a situation with uh, our campus in Nicaragua was shut down because of they had a, a civil unrest there and the streets were blockaded. So all of our students went online immediately. So we had experience doing that. And so when COVID-19 hit and we had to move from one day on campus to the next day online, our faculty and our students, for the most part, obviously there was some, some transition, but most of it was they were ready and able to go. All the course materials we had in our online could be transferred to our on-campus online programs. And uh, we had what's the most interesting thing is our retention rate for year over year from uh, the early part of, well, the middle of March when we moved to today, we have a better retention rate than we had last year at the same time. Yeah. That speaks volumes, I think. And how do you think the student first 
mentality and, and the philosophy that you had, how, where did that come from? Because I think just from being in the faculty side, I've been in education for 20 years, working with a number of schools in the area and online as well. But where did that come from? Like what, what, because you were one of the early pioneers of that. I, I didn't hear that, you know, a lot when in the traditional sectors. And now it's something that we're all talking about, student first, student first, student first. But you guys, I always remember being a school that championed the idea of a student-centered environment with the short classes, with the flexible schedule, with the, the schedule out for the year so students could plan their schedule. Where did, where did that come from? Was that something you and your mom just sat down and said, we just need to do something totally different? Or, or how, how did you come up with even that focus? Well, I, I had to, your alma mater, University of Florida, I was a te- teaching assistant there. And that's where my my boss said it's a great job if it wasn't for the students. And that, that bothered me. And what you said about look to your left, look to your right, I experienced that. I could not believe it. And I said, what is the point of failing students? Why do you put notches on their gun belt if they were like a, a bad man in the West? For us, it, it is our, our our job is to make them successful. We We fail when we fail a student. So two things that we did right at the beginning is we we did we had an entrance requirement and we we measured, we benchmarked what knowledge they needed and we crossed we crossed it over to what they could what their test scores were. And so we have never been open enrollment. We always had about a 30% rejection rate. And they're all different based on the course and the program because if a student can't succeed and, and or is going to be struggling too much, then it hurts the rest of the class. And our job is to make students successful. And if the, the environment of the class is disruptive, it can't be successful. And the second part is, is my... Uh, really close, my mentor in in the schools, uh, school you know school uh, career college sector said to me, if you take care of the students, the students will take care of you. And I, well, I never forgot that. And if you give the students a quality education, and when I mean quality, it's not one that where you get all A's. I mean where you have to push the students to their limit and then just back off one inch. If those students who are pushed hard yet not, you know, not to an excessive push, they're going to learn. They're going to be. They're not going to be bored, and they're going to uh, want to be successful. And and I'm going to tell you, if, if when we make decisions, when we make policies, some of them are very strict. I mean, we have a dress code. You know that. We have uh, we had attendance requirements. Many colleges today don't have that, and that we believe is what made it possible. Because if a faculty member calls the student when they're out, which we require, guess what? It shows the students we care, and it's they that gives them the strength to overcome the obstacles that they face. Because most of our students are adult learners. Most of our students have uh, children. Sixty-four percent have dependents. 48% are married to uh, have a spouse. So consequently, uh, they they have challenges in their life. 30, 83% of our students work. So not only do they balance work and balance family and balance the time and money, of course, they have to go to school. 
and we have to get make it worthwhile for them. And that's why we make policies that work for them, the one class at a time that we teach, rather than five classes or four classes at a time. The working adult can't deal with that. So we do one course a month, four courses a semester, and we go three all year round because the adult learner summer vacations do not mean a whole lot. You know, the summer off doesn't mean a whole lot to an adult learner who wants to get out of school as quickly as possible. So all the programs, all the the designs that we have used in our programs and our uh, our policies have been designed to meet the students' needs, not necessarily the faculty or the administration needs. Awesome, John. Yeah, just to just to shift just a little bit, uh, uh, Dr. Kaiser, um, you are the chairperson of the board uh, for the National Advisory Committee on Institutional Quality and Integrity for the U.S. Department of, uh, of Education, better known as NISIQI. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing there? And what is for the people that don't know uh, that are listening to this? What is NISIQI, and and why are you involved? Um, I'm a advocate and a student of accreditation, and early on in my career, uh, almost 40 years ago, I got involved in visiting schools for certain accrediting agencies. I've done probably over 150 visits. I've served as a member of a accrediting commission. I served as the chairman of an accrediting commission. So for me, accreditation is a... Uh, a really important part of what I do in, in ensuring the uh, peer review system, which I think is so important as, rather than a ministerial oversight of higher education. The NASICI, which is a committee, an advisory committee to the Secretary of Education, which is appointed by both the House and Senate and the Secretary, their members, there are 18 members, 18 of us, and we review uh, accrediting agencies. We we are the accreditor of accrediting agencies, so to speak, and we review them to make sure that they meet the requirements set forth by the federal governments, uh, by the Congress, in terms of the the statute, that they meet certain requirements to ensure the protection of the federal government's dollars invested in higher education. So technically, we are the gatekeeper for accrediting agencies to be uh, able to distribute Title IV aid, like the Pell Grant, the Student Loan Program, and other programs of federal importance. So we also review the military universities there uh, if they need new degree levels or programs. And we also uh, we serve as the gatekeeper for the funds coming through the uh, the the, for National Institute of Health and others for making sure that those agencies meet the requirements of the federal government. So that's uh, explanation. Th th that's okay. I, I think <laughs> I don't know, and, and there are, are there are some that wouldn't. Um, but uh, you know, we've seen some um, ripples in um, the way uh, accreditation has been operating. Right there's uh, the ruling that came down that said that there's the open border system for accreditors, and they could start accrediting uh, institutions outside of their uh, regional, you know, say borders, but regional areas, uh, mm -hmm. which is one thing. And then obviously the second part of that is is COVID-19, and 
the number of institutions that have rapidly moved to online. Um, there has been some absolute failures uh, of, uh, you know, delivering quality online content because, the, you know, institutions took on-ground curriculum and just tried to transpose it to online, which doesn't work because the, the pedagogy is just completely different. Is there disruption now amongst accreditors and Nisiqui and how you're looking at oversight, um, you know, as, as universities are having to pivot to online, um, making decisions, uh, you know, because uh, I don't have to get into it, you know, it probably better than anybody, but there's been a change now. COVID-19 has created a lot of disruption. And, and how does uh, the accreditor of accreditors look at the current situation right now and the level of disruption and say, oh, all fine. It seems to me that there'd be some discussion around, wait a second, we got to, we, there has to be some level of involvement, maybe a, a closer uh, to what the for-profits experienced in terms of oversight as institutions look at online. Is that, is that the case? Well, the fact is Nasiki, uh, or the, I should say the Congress established rules for institutions to adopt uh, online educational experiences. And so each of the accreditors, in order to meet our requirements, if they're going to recognize schools that have online, have met specific standards. However, COVID-19 came out of nowhere. COVID-19 created an environment where people had to adjust, and many, many institutions were not prepared. And, uh, it, it, it is sad because an effective online program is not just turning on your, you know, putting on Zoom and watching your teacher lecture for two hours and then uh, giving you assignments that you have to turn in. It, it's a, a much more involved, much more intricate, much more complex process. Right. Unfortunately, I don't think, one, anybody was prepared for it. And the fact is, I think there's, the government has given a lot of um, um, freedom for the institutions to uh, to meet the requirements of the students, and uh, I'm not sure the assessment has been made, or in fact, maybe will be made. Some institutions just shut their doors and close for the semesters. Uh, so, you know, the K through 12 has experienced the same, if not even more significant. Uh, changes because as I've talked to my employees and their children, uh, our county where I live in Broward County just wasn't prepared to move online and uh, didn't have the learning the learning resources embedded in their programs that really make it alive and effective for students to learn. So, uh, but even for us, uh, you know, when the hospital is closed to our clinical students, we have a lot of medical programs, students who have to go out and practice on patients. We had to use simulators and simulated artificial intelligence to to simulate the real world experience, which I don't think is, even in our institution, we did the best we could, but I don't think we could be totally effective. And until COVID-19 passes, it, it's created a great strain on our ability to deliver the quality we like to see. So uh, it, it is a challenge and to the accreditors, uh, I have to give them credit. They've been extremely flexible in this emergency situation and have uh, basically 
given the institutions the opportunity to go to online without getting the formal review process and the formal assessment processes that would have been required by the government except for the emergency. What is your marketing challenge? Are you pacing short for your start? Is your cost per inquiry increasing? Need to cool down your fall melt? From sophisticated software, multi-touch omni-channel nurturing to the latest in digital media, MDT will help your school captivate, resonate, and automate your marketing efforts. Learn more about MDT Marketing at mdtmarketing.com. Your marketing challenges end here. So here's the second part of that question, and this is, you probably um, have more information on this than anyone but and thought about it, but I'm of the opinion, and this is my opinion, <laughs> that we're seeing a, a vergence of, of for-profit and non-profit education. And what I, what I mean by that is there are a number of institutions that were not offering online classes before that are offering online classes now. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to go to this state to go to this school anymore. You can stay, you know, at your house and you can go to that school, uh, but you could also go to the one that's down the street and have the same exact type of education. So do you really need to go, you know, if you're in Texas, do you need to go to a school in Oregon that's online or can you go to the one that's, uh, excuse me, 10 miles down the road and go online? So there are going to be a number of players in the online space in terms of marketing. And that's where I think the convergence comes in. The more schools are going to be marketing to less students. Do you foresee um, a merging of, uh, uh, when I say merging, it's, it's more of a business model of education. Are you seeing that at all? Or do you foresee that happening with increased competition? I do believe there'll be a change. Uh, I mean, we've exposed tens of millions of students to a different uh, experience, uh, one which fits certain people's needs. Now, frankly, I believe the K through the 18 year olds, the high school students graduating high school today, they're, they're going to college almost for a different reason, let's say, than the adult learner, which does happen to represent a majority of the students in this country. So the 18 year old is still looking for the college experience and that is not sitting online and working with your instructor at four in the morning i mean that's a <laughs> the adult learner you know in their in their underwear you know this is a different more adult learners exactly. i think will involve themselves with that i think the 18 year olds are still going to go and they they want to participate in football uh, watching football being part of uh, clubs and being, as I did when I was in college back in the early 70s, throw Frisbees for a living. I was really good at throwing a Frisbee. It, you know, that's a, 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 some folks have said that uh, college is a four-year extension of adolescence because the job market can't handle the, the 17, 18-year-old yet. Uh, so I think you will have, you still have the need for those, you know, traditional campuses, traditional activities. However, I think you'll see the adult market is going to gravitate more to the online experience. 
the adult market has a lot of responsibilities. And um, the one thing they will find, though, that the reality is that online is not cheaper than on campus. And if you think it is, then you're not getting a good online experience. A good online experience has the same basic expense with as a faculty with a small group of students that the small private independent college or the 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 nonprofit the for-profit school usually classes you know once you get beyond 24 in my mind you, you don't get the same experience now the university of florida you go for organic chemistry class of 550 you yeah. can't do that yeah. online it just doesn't have the faculty doesn't have the time because it's online is a much more time intensive for the faculty than sitting in class teaching one hour a day monday wednesday friday and or two or three different classes with the faculty loads that the teachers have so online is a full-time experience and i think uh, the colleges will find that out and find out that if you do it right, it's just as expensive as on-campus classes. And for the student, it gives them a great deal of flexibility. And beyond that, you can do hybrids. So you can have on-campus and off-campus as a, a percentage of your educational experience. So you can have the best of both worlds. So we're not just limited to online or on-campus. We can have both. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, what's what's next for Kaiser University? I mean, you've been there, you've, you've been moving along, you're hitting enrollment records. I'm assuming there's an assumption, but I'm assuming that interest is increasing because you have a, a form of online learning. Um, where do you take Kaiser uh, in the next five to ten years? Well, we're going to continue to uh, stay close to our mission, and that is uh, providing career education. That's the key, career education to mo motivated students. We have this long mission statement that the creditors require us, but it's still the same after 43 years, providing quality career education to motivated students. So we'll be adding new careers, new programs as as the world changes. I mean, the curriculum we teach today and the way we teach it is so different from 10 years ago. So, you know, between artificial intelligence, between uh, electronic uh, simulators and virtual reality, I see that becoming a significant part of our educational experience. I see us adding more graduate programs. Uh, we've gotten really good at that. And I think you'll see us filling in niches and needs where the society is, whether it be in cybersecurity or uh, nurse uh, midwifery, because uh, the cost of higher education is going. So the, the you know the nurse anesthetist, the nurse midwife, the, the physician assistant. We teach all of those three. The nurse practitioners. Uh, these will all become a greater demand because the cost of medicine and healthcare is so high. And obviously in the technology area, you know, cybersecurity, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, coding, and all the different subject areas which are needed by industry and needed by our society, 
uh, we'll be there. That's what, what our goal is. Uh, so I think it's, again, being being afraid not to change too fast, but being afraid not to change at all. I mean, that's, the, so that's this constant unknowing of what the future will bring. But we have to change, but at the same time, we have to be, we don't want to get in top of our skis. We want to make sure that we are meeting the needs of the employers. So we do a whole lot of work with uh, employers. We do a whole lot of work with uh, the industry leaders to, to understand where the market's going. And we'll follow along, not get in front, but we'll follow along to, to make sure that our students are successful. That's that's all I can ask. Yeah, you touched and, on a really important point there. Hmm? No, I was going to say, do you want to ask? Because I'm going to keep going if you know. I, I got more questions. Oh no, I, I, I'm all over that one because you know I love to, to talk about workplace readiness and I love to talk about ROI because we have students and. Um, Dr. Kaiser has alluded to this, and Joe, you talked about this as well, where the accreditors are looking at the outcomes, and we have students that we want to make sure they're prepared adequately for the workplace. We want to make sure that their, their time, their money that's being spent is being spent in a way that's going to benefit them in terms of their career. So you touched on this, Dr. Kaiser, about looking at what are kind of trying to do a little bit of prediction as to what the students are going to need. We know with covid now we're going into a whole new landscape as far as the workplace is concerned, a lot of people being out of work. Can you touch a little bit, because I've taught for Southeastern College, or I think Southeastern College now, um, I believe is the name of your career, more of the short programs, the diploma programs, okay. and some of the more career-ready programs. Can you talk to us about that? Um, sometimes I feel like we see in the traditional sphere as far as the colleges, there's a little bit of a resistance or maybe a little bit of skepticism about some of the shorter programs, the diploma programs. How do you think that's going to change as we go into post-COVID and people that may be unemployed need to ramp up their skills relatively quickly? What is your philosophy as far as those short programs and, and how did that inform you starting the uh, the Southeastern College Division of Kaiser? Well, you hit on a very important point and, and that's one of the challenges with higher education and educators, PhDs like myself. We we tend to, I've always had this belief that the doctoral level institutions hate the master's level, the master's level hate the community, the baccalaureate degrees, the baccalaureate degree schools hate the community colleges, the community colleges hate the votex, and everybody else hated the career schools, the for-profit schools. So it was this, this, this kind of, downward progression of a faith in what people do. A career college like a Southeastern and like others play a critical, even the vote techs and the public side of it. Uh, the fact is we need air conditioned mechanics and it doesn't require a four-year degree. You want to be an HVAC person to learn the sheet metal, to learn the motors and it doesn't take a four-year degree. It doesn't take the general education courses. An auto mechanic, a diesel mechanic, a uh, and go on. I mean, there's so many levels, a uh, vocational nurse for that matter, that don't require a social degree or a baccalaureate degree. And because we want to invest so much in the graduate schools and so much in, uh, let's say, University of Florida, if you, I've been on I should say, I haven't been on the Florida State campus because my wife's from Tallahassee. I have building, they have built more buildings in the last 10 years. You, you can't believe it. Mm -hmm. Now, 
that haven't made the investment in the Votex and in the career colleges yet are, you know, try to get a plumber today, try to get an electrician, <laughs> try to get uh, a truck driver. I mean, it's expensive now because of the shortages. So that's right. there is a role for those kinds of institutions and students and graduates. And uh, again, uh, some of the, uh, which one of the philosophers said, if neither our philosophy, let's see, neither our philosophies nor our toilets, uh, I can't remember the, the statement, but anyway, it's about you got to have plumbers and you got to have philosophers. We can't, we can't ignore that we need both. And if we don't recognize that we need the shorter programs, that's a very serious mistake for our society. Absolutely agreed. Uh, Art, what do you, um, what do you, what advice do you give to the for-profit sector right now? I mean, you know, to say that, to say that anybody that knows anything about education knows that the for-profit sector went through a very hard time, um, and you know, 2011 through 14 maybe, and then, um, and then again. Uh, here because of COVID, there a number of them that offered uh, career training on ground, you know, moving online and, and the difficulties with that. What's the advice to the for-profit sector knowing that, uh, you know, we've shrunk uh, is, is what uh, many have said about for-profit. You know, we've, we've shrunk because of, uh, of uh, stifling regulation, unfair, uh, uh, unfair oversight. I mean, there's a number of... <clears throat> A number of things. I mean, what what does the for profit profit sector have to do to survive and thrive moving forward? And I, I think they need to come to the realization that uh, they live in a political world. They can't be a, an ostrich and stick their head in the ground, expect things to happen in their favor. Um, this whole anti for profit sentiment is political. It's not based on facts, and or some people would say science. It's based on a competitive environment that we're in for students. Uh, the demographics for traditional higher education are shrinking. Uh, the low unemployment, which we faced up until February, will put huge pressure on schools for students, and. Uh, it's interesting if you look at higher education bill, most, so much effort is placed on putting in negative uh, issues with uh, the for-profits that they tend to ignore the rest of higher education and K through 12 for that matter. I mean, there was an article recently about Kent State, which is the head of community college division that was in a community that had 33% minority African-American population and they hadn't graduated African-American in two years. Those facts don't get out. That's why I say it's political, not actual. Uh, We were hurt by the publicly traded companies coming into the sector so heavily. And obviously they have a very unique view of the world being uh, publicly traded and having to meet shareholder demand. But I honestly believe that the career college, as my friend Joe Pace calls them, the entrepreneurs, they can't think that they're isolated. They need to make investments in the political process. 
because their funding is based upon it. And if they don't wake up and support the National Association and don't wake up and support uh, the local uh, representatives and senators, uh, it, they are a potentially a troubled sector of higher education. And the National Association is the uh, uh, oh boy, CQ. CQ. I'm losing it. Uh, career, career education, education colleges and universities. Correct. Right, run by uh, Steve Gunderson, and uh, you know, there's a lot of good people. I, you know, guys, I I work in nonprofit education um, uh, for a university, but but I have a lot of friends and colleagues in the for-profit sector, and never uh, met people more committed and passionate about students. Uh, uh, are uh, you're recommended to us uh, uh, to be on this podcast by uh, a colleague of mine, Mitch Talenfeld of MDT Marketing, um, who, who's an amazing man and, and very helpful. And, you know, I think that just, uh, you know, that's great advice for the sector. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a need. And, and hopefully, um, hopefully, even though it's political, uh, the, the uh, for-profit sector and those that run institutions will get involved and advocate for themselves. I think that's what you're saying, right? Don't sit on your hands. Get out and advocate for yourself. Correct. And, and invest in it. it. It's, you know, it is not a static process. It's a very active process and you have to be involved. And I think one I mean, thing that's it, different about, I'm sorry, Dr. Kaiser, and I, I was just going to yeah. just interject just for a, a quick moment about one thing that I've noticed with the for-profit versus the nonprofit is such a focus on student success and such a focus on putting the resources there, whether it's making sure that faculty are reaching out to students. Um, I found more of a kind of a laissez-faire or, or lackadaisical attitude when I've worked at public colleges and universities, it's kind of like sink or swim, like we talked about at, at University of Florida. And, and you know, it, I want to paint all traditional schools or public schools with the same brush because everybody's experience might be different. I had a great experience. But I think as an adult, when I went to a, a for-profit for my master's degree, I needed faculty attention. I needed someone to understand that I was a single mom at the time. How, what would advice would you give just to pivot back again into the, the for-profit or even the career colleges, how would you um, advise them as far as developing, because you guys have done an excellent job with that at Kaiser, developing, we know from our uh, interviews with some of the other thought leaders, we had um, John Clark from Gallup and talked about how like 75% of um, the Gallup respondents um, that they polled said that their experience and the interaction that they had with faculty not only helped them build confidence during their program, but even help them in their career as they entered into their career and became more confident in their career. How have you guys at Kaiser been able to really establish that as a, a guiding philosophy, the, the relationship between faculty and student, and how would you advise schools, whether they be for-profit or even non-profit, that now we're going to really have to rely on that relationship as students are kind of floundering a little bit in the online environment? What would you say would be some advice that you would give to help develop that philosophy for faculty to be heavily involved in that? Well, first, I agree with you 100%. I think the critical uh, relationship building between faculty and students is what makes, that motivates and keeps students involved in their education. Education's difficult. I don't care how you look at it. You know, it, it is so ephemeral. It doesn't have any, you know, it's not like, you're grabbing a, your cell phone, you can feel it, you can touch it. 
the education is something that goes into your system and hopefully you, you take stuff out of it. But it is the, 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 the responsibility of the student to learn. But a good faculty member, a faculty member who is committed to their students is the difference in unlocking the and opening up the student's desire to learn. Uh, and for us as an uh, institution, we want to make sure that when we hire people, we hire people who have a passion for their industry, have a mm -hmm. passion for teaching, having a passion for students. You know, one of my, I had a, when I was at the University of Florida, I had a faculty member, an absolutely brilliant man, but had absolutely zero communication skills. If we didn't have that course as a requirement to graduate, we would have all dropped out in the first day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was just totally obtuse and, and totally uninvolved. And, and he was given the course because he wasn't capable of refusing it. Because they, it, you know, it was, it was a historical methods course. So what I'm saying is an institution that chooses its faculty not only from their experience and from their knowledge in the area, but their passion for students, their passion for teaching, that's what makes a school different. And if I was a student, that's what I'd be looking for, our long-term faculty and, and read the reviews of the faculty. It makes a difference. All right, Art, well, we want to be sensitive to your time. Thank you uh, for that. I've got three last things for you, and I'm going to give them to you. Uh, one to tell you, um, one to ask you, and one that you get to get to say. How about that? Um, and the first one is, is that uh, if you didn't know, you uh, have a higher education celebrity on your hands uh, working with Kaiser in Elizabeth Liba, also co-hosting <laughs> Get Up Experience. So, you know, I, I just learned know that today. Ed. He just learned that today. He, he was today years old when he learned that. <laughs> yeah, he, she is a higher ed celebrity, and uh, boy, you got a, a asset on your team. Uh, two. Thank you. <laughs> what What do you think? the future of higher education is going to look like, particularly in a post-COVID-19 world? Well, I think the future is still good. Uh, I still believe that, uh, you know, if, I remember used to hoping that I could, remember, I don't know, they used to talk about you put on the earphones, they play a tape, you wake up, you go to sleep, wake up speaking Spanish. I don't think that's going to happen very soon. So I do believe there will be a need for educational institutions that provide the structure and uh, platform for students to learn. Now that platform may be becoming increasingly multimedia, you know, both in an on-campus and in an online environment, whether it be hybrid, online, or uh, even in the classroom using social media and, and all kinds of different devices to get the the material to make it more interesting and more exciting uh, and more usable for the students. So I do think it's it's positive. I think uh, it's for I think public education is going to have to readjust because the these huge campuses that they have built all over the country will shrink. Their enrollment will shrink on campus, and uh, I think you'll see those institutions in the private sector that adopt, ad adapt to the changing environment will continue to grow. 
Great. Thank you for that. And lastly, anything that we did not cover, anything that you want to say about Kaiser University uh, and your success there? Oh, we covered a lot. Um, just, you know, we work hard every day to help our students, and it's hard, especially in the COVID-19 world. So I guess if I had something to say to if any students are listening, be patient. This will pass. Uh, but you have to adapt to this changing. Uh, the, 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 if it hadn't happened so quickly, I think a lot of the challenges you are facing or we are facing would not be as great. The fact that it's just continuing and not leveling off makes it difficult for us to plan what the future will be. So I think everybody needs to be patient. Everybody needs to work together and not stop learning, not stop teaching, but to, uh, you know, to make sure that when it's time to go back to campus, you come back to campus if that's what you want or if you want to stay online. We're going to try to make that available to you. Awesome. Well, there you have it. You've said it all, Dr. Kaiser. We really appreciate you. Um, it's been an honor to speak with you and Liz and I. We were very excited, to say the least, to have you on the show and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, wish you continued success. Uh, and thank you for your service to the education sector. I know you've been involved for many years and, and we appreciate you very much. Again, thank you for allowing me to be on your podcast. This was a lot of fun, and and appreciate what you're doing and and bringing to light uh, the differences in higher education because that is so important to understand. If you are experiencing marketing and enrollment challenges and are concerned you don't have the answers, make certain to contact MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a well-respected and experienced internet marketing agency that is great at managing large education marketing budgets. And they provide you with real-time reports so you can make fast decisions without waiting for a manual spreadsheet. Learn more about MDT Marketing at mdtmarketing.com. That's mdtmarketing.com where your marketing challenges get solved. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your host, Dr. Joe Salustio. Elizabeth Liva and Elvin Freitas.